Hey there, and welcome to a very special episode of War Starts at Midnight, a podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined as always today by my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. It's actually Barry Allen. And Peterson Hill. Frank Taylor here. Today we're taking a break from the Magnificent Anderson series, and taking a break from taking a break, to discuss a holiday-adjacent film on Jake's war crimes list. For the Thanksgiving break, we're celebrating T. Hanks giving with a review of Steven Spielberg's 2002 Christmas caper, Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and, of course, Tom Hanks. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with Frank Abagnale's fake ID. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey guys. Hey What's going on, Chris? Chris. Long time no speak in front of microphones. That's been a minute. Yeah, having a baby will do that. We're together for this special Thanksgiving, T Hanksgiving episode. So I figured what better way to kick things off than by just shining a little light on what we're thankful for in this very, very bizarre year of 2020. Well, if, if we're keeping it in the realm of, of cinema, I, I'm thankful for being able to watch more movies at home. I mean, in theory, if I had time to and didn't have a screaming child, uh, the fact that more new releases are landing on streaming services. I think I'm thankful for that. I honestly haven't had too much time to 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 watch much. I think the last new release I saw was actually I I caught Tenet in a theater, an empty theater. It was just me. You went to a theater. I went to a theater. It's the only theater that I've been to since since uh, lockdown. It was like a early bird special first screening of the day. Like in AMC or like Alamo Drafthouse? Um, it was an extreme or escape or I don't know, some knockoff. Uh, they, 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 they had nice, uh, Dolby, uh, visions. I don't know. It was, it was, it was good. It was good. I enjoyed it. Um, but, uh, you know, it was the type of thing where I'd been kind of keeping an eye on the, uh, reserve seating and noticed that, you know, there were, if any, maybe two, one to two people in those like early screenings. And it was, you know, a while in. Uh, to the do you wear a mask? I wore the whole I, movie? yeah. I, I wore a mask the whole time, just like Bane. Huh. But um, <laughs> uh, but no, it was good. I and I enjoyed I enjoyed Tenet. I know a lot of people had things like I I enjoyed the heck out of it. To be honest, I haven't seen it because I wanted to see it on the big screen, and I just haven't found time. So this is the other side of that. That thankful I can watch more things at home. I also will be super thankful when I can get back to a theater yeah. and not have the screaming kid around. <laughs> get a babysitter, go out, wear a hazmat suit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. see whatever they're going to show in theaters now, a football game or something. I assume the industry is collapsing. What about you, Peterson? What are you thankful for? Well, I mean, in this year of COVID, I'm very thankful that Tom Hanks got COVID and recovered. And recovered. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad that last statement was there. Jeez. I mean, is he is he chasing you for fraud or something? What's your problem? Look, n- everyone loves Tom Hanks, right? I mean, yeah. He he got it, what, early February, mid-February? And that was the first sign that we were all like, maybe this thing's actually yeah. pretty serious. Yeah. Content-wise, you know, it is nice having things premiere on uh, streaming. You know, last thing I saw – New, I think, was Trial of Chicago 7, the new Sorkin film, and you know, obviously some TV shows. I'm currently in the middle of The Queen's Gambit, and 
just saw Haunting of Blind Manor, and then, you know, tons of new things coming up, like Soul, which I'm very excited about. Um, Wonder Woman 1984 dropping. Yeah, that's exciting. Pretty wild. But not as wild as what we watch in our house, which is the Great British Baking Show. What about uh, Travel Man? I, I ate all the Travel Man. But but there is a British Baking Show version of Travel Man uh, where Paul Hollywood uh, does bakes around the world. It's really great. 2020 has done a number on me mentally. 20, I, I mean, <laughs> that, that actually brings me to what I'm thankful for, and that is 2020 has done a number on all of us. And as a result, uh, I've sort of pushed myself away from social media. And I really enjoy it. I really enjoy not uh, doom scrolling Twitter or just falling into a hole of Instagram or whatever. I deleted Facebook years ago now, but um, it's it's been nice to kind of recalibrate and just, uh, you know, focus on staying alive. That sounds very nice. And I wish I wish I had that kind of strength and will. It's uh it's a day to day battle, but. Um, no, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've turned off all my notifications. I I've basically done everything but uninstall them. So I can still take a quick look if I want to, but I've made them sort of a little more difficult to access so that I can't just like pull out my phone and instantly like oh, I have nothing to do. I guess I'll open up Twitter. Like I have to go and hunt it down and that's been enough for me to like sort of stay, you know, out of that. You know, I might I might take a look once, twice a day. I feel like you're just falling in into the trap that Frank Abingale is setting for all of us to stop using social media so he can go back to fraud. I feel like <laughs> I feel like cell phones and social media will put a big, big hamper on, on the fraud game. Are you a real life pilot? I sure am, little lady. The jump seat is open. It's been a while since I've done this. Which one's the jump seat again? Dr. Connors to the ER. Dr. Connors to the ER. This is irrefutable evidence that the defendant is lying. Special Agent Hanratty, FBI. Hello, Carl. You're going to get caught. It's like Vegas. The house always wins. Some nuts flying around the country posing as a pilot. Call him the James Bond of the sky. Hello, pusher. This is by far the best date I have ever been on. He's a kid. That's why he doesn't have a record. 30 milligrams of codeine every four hours. Do you concur? I concur. Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? Concur with what, sir? <laughs> Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you your son is fudging checks. I have a payroll check here I'd like to cash. I'm working part-time at the church now. Just tell me how much yours and I'll pay you back. $1.3 million. I'll be choosing eight young ladies to be a part of Pan-Am's future stewardess program. All right, guys. So I know that Catch Me If You Can is not uh, really the hot ticket movie for us to be coming back from a long hiatus, but, uh, I don't care. I was, you know, we, we had the time to, to record an episode and I thought, let's do something fun. Let's do a tea Hanks giving. And then I remembered that Jake had never seen catch me if you can, which I do not understand. That seems criminal with the number of performances and just all involved parties. Uh, and so here we are, Jake. The first thing I have to know is like, how much did you love this movie? Uh, actually, way more than I expected. Like, even even having looked at like the cast and 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 having Spielberg's name on it, I was like, you, you know, I haven't seen it, so 
I feel like I've seen all like how many great movies can he have in him? Yeah, this this yeah, guy's sure. just Steven Spielberg. But 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 still, seriously, I was like, it, it must not be like a top tier Spielberg for me to have missed it somehow. Uh, I was wrong. This is great. This is really excellent, excellent movie. Fun from start to finish. Very easy to sit down and watch. Um, but deeply, deeply entertaining. Uh, I don't know how I missed this one. What was I doing in 2002? I don't That's know. a phenomenal man. question. This is like, this is one that I watch just over and over and over again uh, in in high school. Like this is one of those. DVD- was it like a, was it on cable or you just no? Had like a tape it was just, just like it was one of those DVDs that I bought early on when I started collecting oh. DVDs, and it's so entertaining that it's just it was one of those things that I could put on and then I would just get sucked in because like I think John Williams in the um in the special features. When he's talking about the score, he he calls it a bonbon movie in that like mm-hmm. in that it's, you know, a little lighter and more fun than some of the other stuff that he's collaborated with Spielberg on. Um, and the thing that I find interesting is that it is that like it is a crowd pleasing movie, but at the same time, it's dealing with sort of tried and true Spielberg uh, tropes of family, of divorce, of you know he's he's juggling a lot of things and really if you look at it all on paper i this is a movie that i don't think should work as well as it does but spielberg just nails it from start to finish i think yeah and spielberg got the rights in i think 97 and there was a number of directors when he got dreamworks set up that were going to take it you know fincher was attached at some point gore verbinski was the one who got incredibly hmm. close cameron crow almost made it and you know, I think a couple of those have been interesting movies. Gore Verbinski could have been very interesting. This seems like it's in a Cameron Crowe Crow wheelhouse. To Cameron Crowe would have been interesting, but at the same time, I think what makes it transcend all those other directors is that Spielberg walks this really fine tightrope between being very funny, very engaging, very zippy, but also if you sit and think about it for, you know, 90 seconds you're like wow this is actually some really really heavy subject material yeah about a kid who is displaced can't find a family and it's searching for that family in a way which actually ties perfectly into our magnificent anderson series with pta um and the frank abignale character is so rich and interesting and then obviously the carl hanratty character i mean this is to me is True, 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 top-tier Spielberg. The thing I like about it is that it is that Bon Bon movie. Like, it didn't go into, like, a, a, a deep depression of the family broke up and all that. Like, he, he kind of landed right on his feet uh, with his with his plan to be a, a deadhead on the TWA flights. Uh, but it, it didn't uh, try to be over, uh, I guess, over dramatic or overly um, introspective on... Uh, the family issues, it, it was a backdrop for um, for setting up the plot, and it really is kept pretty light, I think. Well, and it, it gives a motivation, but it doesn't get yep. – like, you you mentioned – you said Fincher was was fin- at one point? Like, I can't – Fincher is attached, yeah. I can't imagine what his version of this would have been. It would have been a completely different film, I feel. And that's perhaps why he didn't pick it up, too. I could certainly see the Fincher version of this being very good, but I think it's just going to be, you know, markedly different. It's going to be yeah. darker. It's going to be more focused on kind of him really 
constantly, you know, swindling people and show the real effect that that has, yeah. which we don't really ever get that effect. I mean, you know, I, I love Maybe substitute teacher. Well, I think the most, uh, kind of raw this gets is with the Amy Adams character. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, it is truly, that is a very sad, sad 20 minutes or so of the movie where he gets so close to finding a family. He gets so close and you can tell he's happy and mm-hmm. he really wants out, but he can't do it. He, there's no way for him to get out. And he has that moment where he's talking to Hanratty and he just kind of offhandedly mentions, well, you know, I'm engaged and I, you know, please, you know, I'm done. And Hanratty, you know, does, does the Abignale character in that moment, like give himself away on purpose? Like it's, he kind of like opened the door so that he can keep being chased He's kind of been doing that throughout, though. Like, up until that point, that's, what, maybe the third time that he's kind of almost suggested, why don't you come and try to get me? The Stuyvesant Arms moment. I mean, so that moment has always struck me as this moment where he he wants to settle down, but he's also like, I. but I'll always have – I'll always be looking over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. I'll never be able to stop. And he does. He He loves the chase in some way. Because it makes him feel alive and he wants that family unit, but also it would still be a lie. Yeah. And so, I mean, as much as I think this is fun and zippy in certainly on the first viewing, and I know Jake, this is your first viewing, but um, first viewing, it's always, that's how I always struck it for people is always like, yeah, this is like it's so much fun. And then the more times you watch it, you're like, oh, as fun as this is, it does kind of if you pull back some rocks, it, it reveals some really deep truths about people and kind of families and having surrogate families and looking for them. So for sure. But I think it also is playing in like, I think it zeroes in on Frank's outlook on things. And he's, he's, I guess perhaps chaotic good. Like he's coming in and he's dusting stuff up, but he's, never punching down. He's never conning someone who he's going to harm them, harm their livelihood, harm their family. He's always punching up in his cons. He's only doing it. Uh, Jennifer Garner has a question, has a, has a point to make there. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I think, I think Jennifer Garner, she's, the, she, she propositioned him. She, that was a con man <laughs> getting conned. Like, and I think that is also, she is the exact version of him, except she's female. I mean, you know, I think that's exactly what she is, but the, you know, for 90% of the cons are kind of victimless crimes, you know, who cares? You defraud a bank or an airline, big deal, you know, take a little money from them. It's not really going to, going to matter, but I think the Amy Adams section is he really kind of comes in and destroys this family in some way. Amy Adams just came back from what a year or two from her parents not talking to her. They feel like she has a future again. She feels like she has a potential husband and her parents back. And it's, I think a really, really sad moment. And it's sad for Frank. Yes. Cause he feels like he could settle down in some way, but I think it's really tragic for that family. I'm going to be a bit of a Frank apologist. Okay. In that he did fully intend to marry her. And he, when he, when his cover was blown, he invited her to, to Miami 
but like a, a true con man would have invited her to meet him at the airport in Miami and then went to to Houston or Atlanta or wherever, you know, completely threw her under the bus. But he didn't. He wanted to get on the plane with her. But this in for me, I wonder if when he tells Carl Hanratty, I'm getting married and he tells him you know, I'm in Louisiana, essentially, you know, is he telling him basically come find me, keep chasing me? I, I can't really settle down. I mean, that's I think that's the the heart of that moment to me is yes, he wants to settle down, but he also still wants to be chased, and he still really loves. I mean, because he's just like his father, he See, needs I, that chase. I I don't think I, I don't think it's that malicious though, or I don't I don't think it's that. Me neither. Like I no no, no I don't think it's malicious. I just think it's he's at, at, like carelessness. Maybe he's yeah. 19. At, at at worst, it's. It's him being conflicted and having a moment of vulnerability. To me, it's his motivation for doing that went away because I think it pretty the structure of the film pretty firmly defines his motivation is to like get his dad out of the trouble with the IRS and get his mom and dad back together. He's seventeen, like he wants to fix the family, and it's all like all of those things though are also things that he thinks he can fix, but we as the audience kind of mm-hmm. see that he never can, he can't, yeah. he can't put those just, pieces back together. Just like he can't ask handwriting to just stop investigating him. Like right. I'm done. If you, if you, if you want to call it off truce, truce, yeah. like literally like a kid. Yeah. And I, I, you know, we're now what an hour and 40 minutes into the movie. Um, we haven't even started at the beginning. We started kind of towards the end. The movie, um, the movie starts the end too, though, Peterson. That's part that of the beauty true. of it is the well, structure. Well, it also starts with uh, to tell the truth. So it starts even yeah. outside of the film. Yeah. Um, I think in a really smart, really brilliant opening. But I mean, we haven't even talked about the opening credits of this film, which uh, these are baby making credits. <laughs> if you really want to talk about it that way, I mean, these the, are incredible. The 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 John Williams score, the Saul Bass inspired animation. Ba-da-ba-da. All so good. So very good. It's jaunty. It's fun. It's exciting. It kind of preps you for what you're about to see. It's that jazzy feeling. I mean, it's these opening credits I could just watch on repeat every day. Yeah. I I really do love them. And it it, it does. It gets you excited for what you're about to watch. And there's a reason if you ever look at uh, the Broadway stage musical, they use the exact uh, font of the movie and the opening credits. They use that to uh, time out. On. There's a Broadway stage musical of Catch Me If You Can. Yes, there is. Uh, I don't know how well it did. Uh, I think it got a couple Tony nominations, but um, I I didn't look that up, so don't grind me to the coals here. But uh, it did. I mean, it. You know, it's not like the Spider-Man musical that just opened and lost money immediately and closed within. Days did it actually open or uh, did it just do previews forever? I thought it opened. People Maybe got injured and moving on. We don't we don't have time for. <laughs> I, I love a good Spider-Man play, but I would love door. to go and see a, a, a live train wreck even more. <laughs> but you know, I think you know. Speaking, of, I think, think this could be a great <laughs> stage musical. But also, in twenty years, if they make this into an actual like musical, like I'll be on board for that. I mean, why not? Um, no, in twenty in twenty years they're going to make it a a, a five season uh, show on HBO, <laughs> which also sounds incredibly really good. Yes. Actually, I meant it yeah. as a joke. The, but like, I would watch that. Sounds great. 
can it can it be 30 minute episodes and it's it's you know sort of so like a berry yeah kind of like a berry so you get you yeah. get an episode where it's just carl and his two subordinates driving around like yes you, you get those little those little nuggets of of things because i think that's that's something that's so good about the texture of this is just the way like and it's it's partially in just how tight the script is but also in the way spielberg allows things to happen like the when they go to frank's mother's house and that whole little moment with the sarah lee and the fork (laughs) and the way it all plays out like that's one of those things that i think on paper sounds like it works but then in practice like could just as easily go bad in the hands of someone who doesn't structure it right and doesn't know how to you know where to lean into it and where to just step back and i think spielberg does such a great job of showing you what's going on but not adding too much emphasis to it and then that in combination with hanks just knowing exactly like when he picks up that fork and just sort of like points it at him and pushes it over like it's just every piece in the right place to be perfect in like building out the world just a little bit more. Or whenever, uh, whenever Hanratty's giving a presentation and the carousel gets jammed and there's, yes. there's just these little moments yeah. of texture that kind of add a little bit of humor, add a little bit of reality, but also don't ever lean too far into it to take you out of the flow of the story that he's sucked you into. All right. So Steven Spielberg, that's all you had to say. That, that's, <laughs> yeah. Steven, that's pretty Steven much all Spielberg you directed this movie and it t- you can tell. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. So the, the thing that I liked about this movie that I really didn't expect. And of course, if, if you live in my school, you tend to see all movies you like this. It was a road film. Mm-hmm. It was basically a road film. It was episodic. It went from place to place. It had all those things that keep me really locked into the movie. I don't know if it's some some ADD that I have where I just want to see new things all the time, new places, new characters. But it was. But it was in the same way that I think Indiana Jones is a road movie, which I guess in some ways that is. Uh, but it's just popping popping from place to place. The It's not quite a caper, but something happens and, and then you go on to the next one and it stays incredibly fresh with energy the entire time through the movie. You never stay in one spot or one uh, one of his identities too long. Yeah, Jacob, what about this movie were you like, yeah, I don't really know if that's a necessary Spielberg because you kind of talked about it, but I've got to know because this is – In some bizarre way, I feel like – I, I have seen the Spielbergs I need to see, and this is one I hadn't seen. It's like some weird self-enforcing, like self-reinforcing thing. But just for whatever reason, I was like, ah, I didn't see it. And then it, it never showed up uh, in a place where I watched it. And I, I know that recently, I think it was on Netflix. Uh, is that right? It was on Netflix for a while. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it just never, never bubbled up for I me. I tried to get you to watch it a number of times. But it's, I mean, I, I can understand that, though. It could be that because it is a lighter sort of Spielberg film, you know, I I don't think people give it when they're talking about Spielberg, the great director, they don't put it up on that pedestal because it's, it's not as weighty, but I think it is as good as his best film. I feel like it got bridge of spied. (laughs) It's a great, great film. And just because a great film comes from Spielberg and it's not jaws, 
it's it doesn't get like the same respect that it would if it came from some other random director or the same it's a fantastic- or the same buzz like that's that's yeah, the thing yeah. is like bridge of spies is one of those that we were talking about this off mic before it did it did pretty well box office wise but i feel like i just didn't hear anyone talking about it it just sort of is Hanratty is Hanratty the same character from Bridge of Spies? <laughs> if he is, he got much better at his job by the time it got. He to was Bridge not. Of Spies. He was not a very good FBI agent. <laughs> he's, he's he was okay. Uh, you're always you're always rooting for him. You're also like it's sort of a you know, and and that's another thing that I think Spielberg does really well. He doesn't make Hanratty dopey, or he doesn't descend into his inner personal life which i think someone like david fincher probably would love to to dive into hanratty is just business and that's perfect to go back to the the spiritual cousin of this movie in my mind is indiana jones and it's that indy belloc sort of uh they're both on the same quest i mean obviously one's chasing the other but they're trying to find each other mm-hmm. i i for whatever reason as soon as this was over i was like that was indiana jones that was a different indiana jones. so so to me the spielberg kind of category this fits into is if it's in the same camp as munich and war of the worlds the terminal like all these movies he made in the early 2000s are these characters searching for home and searching for a piece of like the world um you know I, I think, you know, two of my favorite Spielbergs are in the first five years of the century. Um, I think Munich and this are just top tier Spielberg because they are that search for home. And this is like, you know, it's a perfect post 9-11 movie in some ways because, yes, it gets to the darkness of uh, where we were at, you know, as a culture and a country. But then at the same time, it's so fun. And you could take – Anybody this movie, and they would have fun. I mean, Char- one characters of trying to find home or phone home was uh, was present earlier in his career as well. No, of course it was. You know, it certainly was. But he had this like obsession in the early two thousands where he was like, people are looking for surrogate families and homes, and obviously E. T. is an early iteration of that. But um, you know, obviously, Color Purple's that as well. You know, but in the early 2000s, he was obsessed with it. He really was. And I think, you know, I was going to guess 9-11 was probably like a big moment for him where he really – he certainly did, I think, because as you look at movies like Munich and this and War of the Worlds, it affected him greatly. I just have to slot this in with, with Raiders. Like this is this is Spielberg popcorn movie 101 and and – I, I I don't mean that to like uh, diminish Raiders or to put this on uh, the the same pedestal as one of the the maybe I don't know ten most influential films of all time or if you want to or blockbusters of all time, but it, but it is a very very fun film and it feels kind of like a like a pulpy kind of approach to to this story where it could have gone in many different directions like you said with a different director it's very much. Uh, a fun adventure. Yeah. I was, I was really concerned. Like, so after, cause I, I hadn't seen this movie in well over a decade. Um, I watched it all the time when I was in high school, but it had been quite some time. And once Jake, you were on board for it, I looked at the runtime and I, I was thinking like, Oh, it's what? Probably like, 97 minutes, something like that. And I see 140 and I'm like, oh God. The fastest 140 <laughs> oh, minutes. Gosh. My God. It's so breezy. 
it's, it's so breezy. Yes. And and part of that is the structure. It's the way that it just continues to move forward and it continues to go from this place to that place. You know, it's it's sort of the same way that that life nothing kernel blimp is always pushing forward by you set in a moment just long enough and then and then you spring to the next thing. Who who was it that said you should really only follow a single character for is it 90 minutes? 100 minutes? That sounds like a Howard that- Hawks thing, but I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking. I, mean, I think I was thinking it was Walter Murch or something. Well, but, but I think th- this gets broken about- up by because by, because you have Tom Hanks's character as well to play off of. So you're not staring at uh, at at Frank the entire time. You get a second story in there, even if it's not a, a, a prominent yeah one. Well, I think what's really smart about the way Spielberg structures this is that yes, I mean you spend what two hours and twenty minutes with Frank, but also. You're not spending it exclusively with him. He is flying and he's a doctor and it's all these like what would be like gags. And if you ever had this movie outside of what would be a true story, people would be like, this is – no, I I can't believe this. But, you know, you have the early scenes with Frank and kind of build his home life and then quickly uh, break it down. And, you know, if you've ever seen James Brolin be – Better cast in a movie. Yeah. I, I can't imagine it. Because as soon as he walks on – or <clears throat> as soon as he is speaking at the Rotary Club, you're like, I know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know this guy. Um, Generally, James Brolin drives me crazy, but he's perfect for this. It's Yeah. What? I mean, it's that, it's that weird charisma he has because he is a very charismatic guy, but it's a kind of a certain kind of boomer charisma. Yeah. And when you That's see him good. in their apartment, you're like, I know, I know this guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's, a, he's a wheeler dealer, um, which obviously Christopher Walken is too. So, so one thing I, I like that you pointed out is that this is a true story. I love that Spielberg puts the title card up front because I didn't know this was a true. I didn't know Frank Avignon was a real person or anything like that. I didn't know anything about this coming into it. And if you had saved that title card for the end, I would have probably spent two hours thinking this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is unbelievable. This is you have to put that title card up front. No, that's really smart about starting with to tell the truth because it's yeah. basically a film that starts with. Okay, this is the true story. And, you know, Frank Abagnale, the real life guy, said, you know, it's like 80% true. It's not, it's not all true. Cause, you know, I, I listened to the, uh, audiobook, I guess like 15 years ago, almost to the date. Uh, cause I, it was at a Cracker Barrel and I was like, I, I'll listen to this. Um, <laughs> very interesting, <laughs> but it's very different, um, than this. Uh, and you know, he got his initial scam was like on like, like tires. He was like, Oh yeah. If I like buy tires with my credit card and then I like sell them back to the, uh, gas station, they'll give me the cash. Hmm. And so basically he like swindled his dad out of thousands of dollars. Um, which is something his dad was probably like. Well, I kind of I raised this guy to be like this, at least in the Spielberg. Was it that was Christopher Walken a con man? Oh, it, is that, is that why he was on. in trouble with the IRS? I mean, well, I, I thought so. That, that was my, my read on it. He's uh, he's did, probably did, did you, skimming did you drop money. This and, in the, did you lose this in the parking lot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. If not for if if that one moment weren't in there, I I, I wouldn't have any evidence towards it though. Like everything else, it seems like he he hides it from his son, except for that kind of coy grin he gives him after the amazing uh I, i'm the teacher of this this class uh, well he also had stunt. him dress up as a is a chauffeur yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. swindled him took him like it's 
it's clear, you know, but he's but, he's having fun, but also he's probably skimming money or he's doing something that's not quite on the level. And that, you know, Walken in this movie is just, I mean, I love Christopher Walken, but obviously he can be a little bit of a parody of himself. But when he has this kind of role, mm-hmm. he's so good. I mean, and you get to see him dance because, you know, he's a professional dancer mm-hmm. and, you know, Walken's Where are you just, going tonight, Frank? Where are you going? <laughs> and, and I love, you know, you basically have him for the first, what, 25 minutes and then he has two, maybe three scenes after uh, – the opening and that mm-hmm. last scene is just uh it's just heartbreaking it, it's it's really a incredible performance by walken and you know maybe the best one i mean i think dicaprio is incredible but i think walken is just he may be the best performance in the movie and he shows a vulnerability that he never really does on screen that that last scene is really really like that's probably the the darkest the movie gets for me and i also think the way kaminsky shoots it um with there's sort of a lot of this backlighting and a lot of this mm-hmm. we're kind of getting separation between frank and his father mm-hmm. and it's you can kind of see their relationship you know visually falling apart and it's it's just it's heartbreaking on every level from the performances, from the visuals, from the way it's just totally structured. And that's, I mean, I think that's the thing about scene to scene to scene. It's just everything works on that level in so many ways where from, you know, costume to setting to the way it's lit to the performances to who is cast for the moments. I mean, there's a lot of these little moments throughout, you know, like I think Elizabeth Banks as the teller at the bank. And the way that she giggles and the way – like, it's just everything is perfectly pieced in here. I love the arc that you get with the walking character because after the memory, he wins the lifetime uh, induction to the Rotary Club. Mm -hmm. It immediately flashes forward to a Christmas holiday where Christopher Walken gets um, his wife up and they dance and – it's this very like romantic moment and and you can see Frank just like, Oh my God, like this is like, this is my life. Like I've got the perfect family. Mm -hmm. My parents are perfect and everything comes shattering down so fast when basically they have to leave their house. They go to this tiny apartment and obviously James Brolin comes in and it's clear. The mom's having an affair. And then Leo goes full Gilbert grape. And he just, he looks, he's sitting on the couch and he's like, yep. He's like, you know what? I, I get what's going on. You can't bullshit me because I'm a bullshitter, you know, like my dad. Is that the last time Leo played like a child? It's, it's, uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, that, you yeah. know, we can talk about his 2002 later, but I mean, let's, I mean he's let's, on that couch. How, let's do how it. How much of a kid he looked like on that couch compared to how much of an adult he looked like for the rest of the film is just great acting. Like he, well, he what did, I, Fantastic. No, what I love about this Leo performance is that it comes in 2002 where this movie came out on December 25th, 2002, five days before was Gangs of New York, which he is also in. And you know, he's okay in Gangs of New York. He's not terrible, but he's, you know, unfortunately he is playing against Dale Day-Lewis in a role that, you know, like Dale Plainview, nobody could stand up to Bill the Butcher. Yeah. And it was kind of the moment where – you know, 
DiCaprio kind of grew up. He um, had had been in Titanic and had dodged big studio stuff. And was this before or after the beach? This was after the beach. So the beach was two thousand. Okay, uh, okay. Also after and that box office uh, uh, blockbuster, Man the Iron Mask. Man, well, <laughs> and, so those things were made before or like concurrently with with Titanic. Yeah. So that was like like March of ninety eight. Yeah. The beach. Um, the beach was after Titanic, but yeah, yeah the beach but, was but like definitively the, after Man the Iron Mask was. Yeah. But the, but man, did DiCaprio go on a winning streak after? Probably after this, right? This was probably about the startup. Yeah. This, well, well, this is inflection point. This this I era think, of his career. You take this and. You know, after the beach and using celebrity and man in the air mask is like the question of, you know, what's DiCaprio going to be like as a movie star? Like, what's his like persona going to be? And then he essentially worked with Scorsese and Spielberg in a, you know, a five day period to the general public. And then Gangs like, in New York, Catch Me If You Can, The Aviator, The Departed, Blood Diamond, Body of Lies, Revolutionary Road, Shutter yep. Island, Inception, and then Jay Ecker. So back to, back to a miss there. Yeah, but I mean that. But look, I mean, if you're a what he's probably like thirty five at the time of J. Edgar. If you're a thirty five year old actor, you get called for the new lead in the Clint Eastwood movie. You're gonna say yes. I mean, he is a guy who has consistently worked with auteurs since yeah, Titanic, yeah. and I mean, Titanic certainly an auteur driven movie. Um, and the beaches too. Danny Boyle's certainly an auteur. I don't like the beach, but it's. It's a weird, hypnotic kind of movie, um, and he's consistently worked with the most top of their class directors. I mean, when's the last time he worked with a director? You're like, you know what? That guy's, you know, he's not that great. You know, he, he's got a certain star persona. He's never been in a franchise, never been in a sequel, and I think that starts here, you know, because he said, you know what? I'm going to put my – Sets a flag in the the ground and say, "I'm working with Scorsese, I'm working with Spielberg, and that's who I am." And he's incredible in this movie. It's one of his best performances, and so I think it's interesting seeing just how much he grew up in that little tiny span. Yeah, it was interesting for me to go back and revisit him at this place, uh, particularly since he's playing a younger character, because mm-hmm. like. You know, in my recent memory, it's more, you know, Wolf of Wall Street or Rick fucking Dalton or, you know, these these characters where he's older, more mature, um, more more mature in age, at, at least. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and so to see him so youthful, but so like in his element. It was, it was really interesting. It was like, it was kind of like jumping in a time machine because this is a movie that I was so familiar with, but it was very interesting to see it sort of looking backwards this time. And, um, and also to see that, damn, this performance really holds up. I, I understand why I disliked Leo so much when I was in like fifth grade and Titanic came out, but I also understand why, because you're wrong. Why this? Was, no, because why this? Because you thought he was Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and turns out he wasn't. No, I like Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Not you know. It's, oh no, I, you I, don't. Moving on. What I like what I like about this movie is we've talked so much about Leonardo DiCaprio and his career. Tom Hanks' career has been 
equally great. They they probably have the two best uh, filmographies of modern actors. Have, have they worked you, together again? Is this their only? They haven't worked together again, I don't think. But, you know, Hanks was in a weird point in his career, too, because, you know, after he wins his Oscar for Philadelphia mm-hmm. and basically becomes the the president of Hollywood. Uh, if you've never seen that Oscar speech, go see it because it's it is incredible. And Hanks goes on to win Forrest Gump, and then he kind of you know was in some big movies in the nineties, and then in the early two thousands, it was like, all right, what kind of movie star am I going to be for like the rest of my career? And he's in Castaway, this. And then after this, it's like the Lady Killers, and he kind of like flounders around for a little bit. He's very uh, good in the Lady Killers. He's not the problem with the Lady Killers. Oh, I'm not saying he's the problem, but he's like, <laughs> it's this, you know, he like flounders around, not quite sure the kind of person he's going to be in Hollywood anymore. And I think this is a moment where you're like, you know what? Like, basically, he's going to do this for the rest of his career. He's going to be the consummate professional in his uh, acting career, um, you know, Sully, Enter the Da Vinci spies. Code. Well, let's let's not talk about those, <laughs> right? But you know, Hanks is in this weird moment, and I think Hanks is incredible in this movie. And you know, everyone's like, "Oh, his Boston accent's okay." It's like I don't really care about the accent as much as like you know, what's the performance behind it? Um, and he, I think did he have that accent in the post? Was he? Was he? Um, it's not as cartoonish, but it's okay. you know, it's certainly a Boston type accent. Um, and this is, you know, I mean, Hanks is just—I think he's so good in this. And you know, earlier in this year, he's in uh, *Red of Perdition*, which is markedly oh, yeah. different performance for him, and um, a movie I, I quite like and think uh, Hanks is really good in it. But it's another movie like Fathers and Sons and Surrogate Fathers and Sons. And so, yeah, I, you know, I mean, Hanks is Hanks is to me, you know, if we have like an heir apparent to Jimmy Stewart, it's it's Tom Hanks. Oh, Jimmy that's Stewart. Uh, yeah. 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 No, there's yeah. no argument well, there. And I've always thought, you know, I, I love Paul Newman, but Jimmy Stewart to me may be like the greatest actor of screen ever. Uh, to to me, Jimmy Stewart is to Tom Hanks as Paul Newman is to to DiCaprio. Like, okay. I, I, I don't know why, but maybe maybe just he's he's better looking in the roles he chooses to play and things like that. But Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio, what makes their casting so essential in this movie is that you need two movie stars in this film. Like, if you yeah. had, you know, a good actor, someone like Ethan Hawke. In the DiCaprio performance, you'd be like, yeah, you know, he's he's good in it, but you need that kind of other layer of charisma that someone like Hawk, I think, who's a wonderful actor, especially in these later years, he just doesn't have that, like, kind of movie star charisma. Same with Hanks. You need somebody to, like, come on the screen. You're like, I know who this is. Yeah. Because Hanks immediately tells you who it is. Well, he also he, – he, he deals with this script very well where it's – it's asking him to do a lot of comedy, but he dials it in just right. So it's not hammy. Maybe. But he's not funny. Like he's not funny to everyone around him. He's, he's funny to us. Right. Which is, I think, a hard, very hard line to walk as an actor. Yes, that, like, exactly. You're funny to the audience, but not anyone around you. And if I ask you a question, Agent Handwriting, how can be so serious all the time? So does it bother you, Mr. Anders? Yeah. Yeah, it does bother me. Does it bother you, Mr. Fox? A little, I guess. 
Oh, would you like to hear me tell a joke? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'd love to hear a joke from you. Knock, knock. Who's there? Go fuck yourselves. The shot that's going to stick with me from this movie, that I think is just the absolute magic highlight of this for me, uh, is is that long shot down the tunnel in the uh, terminal? Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it, it's incredible. Is, it's, is it, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's outstanding. Like, it, it sums up the whole movie in a shot. It's, well, it's, it's a one or two, isn't it? Yeah. Until, yeah. like, they basically get down the ramp, and then it's a one mm-hmm. And Does it cut? Does it, does it even cut at the end? I, I can't remember I don't think now, it goes in close. I, I, I think maybe they walk a little closer to the camera, but beautiful. Beautiful. Before before we close, we got to talk a little bit about the actual holiday aspect of this, because yes, you know, to me those those holiday phone calls where essentially every yeah. you know, and there's you know, so the Christmas theme starts early when his parents are dancing, and that's Christmas, and Frank's so happy that's Christmas, and then immediately he goes to the divorce, and then essentially his next Christmases that we know of are him calling Carl and being you know. He has no one else to call. And, and, and that's what finds the surrogate family for him. Cause by the end of the movie, the only person that will take him in essentially is Carl. Cause they're both kind of lost men in some way. And they find this surrogate family with each other. It's a nice little motif to hang everything on because it kind of, it, I think it drives home all these undercurrent tones that aren't too over the top, but are necessary to give us a little bit of motivation for, for Frank. And also, I think also gives us the most insight that we get into Carl as well. You know, his personal life. Yeah. Cause he lies about it. And then he essentially invites, um, invites Frank into his personal life in some way that I think is, I think really moving by the end of the movie. Not only lies about it, but we, we get to see that he's on Christmas Eve. He's there at the office alone. Like that's enough to kind of communicate what's going on. We don't, we don't need the, you know, we don't need the exposition scene of seeing him, you know, go home to his empty apartment and, try to call his daughter and she doesn't want to talk to him or, or anything. No, like, the economy is amazing. There. Yeah, we get it all. We get it all there and it, it's perfect. And I'll say, you know, what I think is so great about the ending of this film is that if you take Spielberg a couple of years later, you know, take something like Lincoln, which I think is a wonderful film and a great script and hard disagree. Is, Continue. Uh, well, <laughs> wrong, but it is what it is. Um, you know, Spielberg ends that movie like five times Ugh. and it's, it, it's mm-hmm. so Ugh, hard. I, I think the ending is just, it's frustrating. Cause you're like, you're like, just, just end it. Like you've got like, you like, you figured out the ending here. Like you don't need to keep just dragging this thing out. Yeah. And Spielberg's probably to the point in his career. Where he's like, you know what? Like I'm going to say every last thing I possibly can about the subject matter. It's like, you've already said it in the last two hours and 20 minutes. We don't need to have like icing on the cake. He gives just enough, like just enough sweetness on the end of this thing where you're like, you know, I love that last couple of exchanges where they're like, how'd you pass the bar? He's like, I studied. 
which <laughs> it, does he actually like? I don't know, but it's a catch. No, yeah, bar he did. Studied. He he did. Um, like that's the that that's an actual like because you don't you don't have to have a law degree to study law, or at least in it, it's probably still in in Louisiana. You didn't have to have a law degree to study or to to practice law, and so he just you know he studied and he he did it. Um, but who, who, who told you that? Did he say that? <laughs> Do you believe him? Uh, I mean. <laughs> but but also the the couple of exchanges that we get at that that moment in the the plane where you know with mm-hmm. like the the eclair and the mm-hmm. like the the sort of compassion that those two have for each other even as they you know they're they're adversaries but they don't hate each other. They, they're still human beings. There's still a humanity to them. Like mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's sort of the general ethos of this movie in a nutshell. And, and it's so refreshing to see that and get it and, and not just, not just have it, but have it feel natural and have it feel, cause I, I feel like a lot of times when a movie tries to go to that place, it feels very saccharine and very glazed on and like a, Hallmark. This movie or movies in general? And movies in general. This movie, I don't yeah. feel that at all. But like, it, that, it's, it's a the delicate. Batman and Joker, two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, that's kind of what mm-hmm. we're well getting at a little bit, a, right? A little bit, but but it it's also speaking to the broader kind of statement of this this movie is like humans are resilient. They have a capacity to um, to overcome really difficult tough things and it's not like a it's not like a hallmark movie where it's like oh we all survived isn't it great let's all hug it's you know it's not shying away from there's no like you were like a son to me yeah you were a dad Yeah. yeah but it's but it's also like it's a it's a very fine line of balance and i don't know i honestly don't know how he pulls it off but it works perfectly I think one of the ways he pulls it off is that, I don't know, 12 minutes before that moment where they're at the table together is when – or directly after that scene where they're talking about the eclair, he's sitting there in the window looking at his mother and then the James Brolin character and his half-sister essentially. Yeah. And it's this moment where he's like, oh, like my life and like the people in it went on without me because I left – and it's this, I think, really heartbreaking moment where another Christmas moment where he's watching them have this really beautiful Christmas together and he's on the outside looking in. It's like, well, I gave up all that essentially. Like I, I ran away yeah, and I gave it up. So Carl's basically my family now. Did anyone get Hook vibes from that scene? I've never seen Hook. You've never seen Hook? You don't need to see Hook. It's awful. Hook's Hook's not awful. I love Hook. <laughs> it's it has a wonderful John Williams score, and it, let, let, agreed. And it's, it's got um, a great Gwyneth Paltrow performance. It does have a great Gwyneth Paltrow performance, and she's in it for seconds. For seconds, yeah. It's just the one scene. Anyway, Hook Hook is worth seeing. Show it. Show it to the the youngling when he's a little older. Um, he'll probably all, look all like right, garbage, let me let me close us out on this on this film I, I i my favorite thing about this just because i i love beating dead horses um is the ending shot is pretty much in my mind one for one with raiders it's the same thing the government <laughs> files this super uh weapon 
in the back of a giant room uh of uh, and just the camera pulls out like it does down the hall in the warehouse of raiders i love it and i didn't realize and and my whole thing is talking about oh, this this shares a spear with it raiders but i didn't think of it watching it because i was so hooked but when i went back and thought about it that's all that's all i could see it through that lens is that that this is this is my these are my favorite things that spielberg does this is this is the best type of cinema and i and i absolutely love it uh what do you say we i know we're not doing a uh magnus of anderson's episode but what do you say we we discuss funniest moments just for uh just for old time's sake okay yeah let's do that game on okay jake what what gave you the chuckles? What what did you like the? What made you laugh the most this time around, or or this <laughs> first me, time around? I, I'll I'll tell you. I I didn't know if this movie would have a lot of humor in it or not. I just I just didn't. And so when um uh, when when Frank starts teaching his class <laughs> and he apparently does it for a week and we just get the cut to the principal explaining it. <laughs> To his parents, and he's in the, in the background, like oh, that, that note needs to be folded, like it, it, if it's it's fake, right? Like I I love the whole setup, I love the premise, but the moment where it starts to reveal the humor that's going to be in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, when the principal is explaining that, that was that was the funny. There are other things are clearly funny, but that that was the part that got me. Mister and Mrs. Abignail, this is not a question of your son's attendance. I regret to inform you that for the past week. Frank has been teaching Mrs. Glass's French class. He what? Your son has been pretending to be a substitute teacher, lecturing the students, uh, giving out homework. Uh, Mrs. Glasser has been ill, and there was some confusion with the real sub. Your son held a teacher-parent conference yesterday and was planning a class field trip to a French bread factory in Trenton. Do you see the problem we have? I love the moment where the old man's being, you know, basically walked mm. out of the room mm-hmm. and Hanks is coming mm-hmm. up the stairs and he comes into the room and the toilet flushes and the decapter comes out and Hanks is like barking at him, you know, you know, hands up, hands up, hands up, all that. And he's like, hold on. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. Um, and just the way DiCaprio is so quick on his feet by basically being as unassuming as possible. Like, hey, I'm, I'm one of you. Like, he doesn't like push it and he gives him his wallet. And, you know, essentially when DiCaprio walks out and he's like, I'll let you keep it. And Tom Hanks finally opens the wallet and it's just like <laughs> label after label. He's just ripped off of condiment bottles or wine bottles yeah. or Coke bottles. And he's like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe I was just duped by this kid. It's such a great moment where it, it sets up them as adversaries, but also. Handwriting like, is being a you, terrible cop. What are, you, what are you doing? Like, and I guess, I mean, I will say DiCaprio is smart. He's like, look, he's like, there's my partner. He's taking him outside. Yeah, um, yeah he's Bugs Bunny. And, and, and Tom Hanks is Elmer Fudd. <laughs> like, it, it really is that, that cartoony interaction between them. My go-to would be the knock-knock joke, just because the delivery <laughs> yeah, of, course, of it yeah. both times is so perfect. Like, the little smirk he gives when he does it the first time in the car 
is so good. Uh, but there were, there were a few things in rewatching this time that I'd kind of forgot. Like I forgot that scene that you were just talking about Peterson. I forgot how it ended. And so it was, it was really honestly exciting. Like I know he gets out of this, but I don't remember how, but there were a few jokes as well. And the, but the one that got me the most was whenever Frank has his plan to go, he, he has like, and it's just part of it is how big his scope is. Uh, but then also the way that he gets hand ready when he gets the, what is it? Six stewardesses to walk him mm-hmm. through the airport. And then he hires the guy to sit in the uniform in the, in the Cadillac out front. <laughs> and then he gets out and then what does he do? He holds up, the the valet sign that says Carl Hanratty and I a- another basically like Looney Tunes exactly, level exactly joke. it's a visual gag and I completely forgot about that moment and I laughed it's so hel- hard. even the size of the sign is perfectly hilarious yes like yes. it, it's not a sheet of paper it's this like he went and made a sign yeah but it's not <laughs> like it's it's sort of measly it's like it's meant it is meant to add as much insult to Hanratty as he possibly can it's just so perfectly executed like so many things here like i i'm so glad that i had forgotten because it was a joy to experience that that moment again That's the charter terminal. Can you get a look at his face? He's got his pilot's cap. Carl, I think it's him. And we'll beat the birds down to our Abuco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Let's fly the car, Frank. Frank? Step out of the car. Keep your hands where I can see him. Don't shoot me. I'm just a driver. A man paid me $100 to wear this uniform, picks one up at the airport. Who are you picking up? Hey! Well, boys, if this was a Magnificent Andersons episode, this would be where we have the Anderson Anthology, where we kind of place the movie on the, the shelf for Wester PT. But uh, it's a Spielberg movie that we're talking about, so... We've got to do the Spielberg Spanthology. So our three categories here are Superior Spielberg, obviously top tier. In the middle, we've got Not My Guy, uh, which is, you know, it's one of those... Bridge of Spies? Bridge of Spies. No, Bridge of Spies is, is Superior Spielberg in my book. I don't no, know no, 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 no. Isn't Not My Guy from Bridge it's, of Spies? It's from Bridge of Spies, yes. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from Carl Hanratty Not when he's in guy. Bridge of Spies. Um, but that's, that's sort of middle tier, you know, you, you wouldn't recommend it to necessarily everyone, but if, uh, if people are really into Spielberg, they should definitely check it out. Or at the very bottom, we've got one big pile of shit. For Superior Spielberg, it can't be Spielberg of Dreams. I just wanted to be Spielberg Okay, of we dreams. can make it Spielberg of Dreams. Spielberg of Dreams, not okay, my perfect. guy, one big pile of shit. Uh, Jake, where, where are you going to put Catch Me If You Can? This is tough. I mean, it, it's actually hard to slot something into three categories when you haven't watched or or like gone in order through a director's uh, canon like we've been doing. Sure. Uh, but that being said, we we all know Spielberg inside and out. Like this is is a superior or uh, this is a, a Spielberg of dreams. And you've heard me gush about it for this entire time. Like like there's no doubt where I was going to put it. 
but I actually feel dumb for having spent 17, 18 years of my life without having seen this. Yeah. Like, without without having had this one. Uh, but it was really nice to get, like, a core, um, just an A-plus Spielberg and an A-plus DiCaprio movie and an A-plus Tom Hanks movie that I had never seen. It was like going back through your favorite uh, 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 uh uh, series on Netflix and realizing you somehow skipped an episode and and there's one more amazing episode of Community, a true story that actually happened to me, by the way. Well, what about you, Peterson? Where are you going to put this? And I'll say I've seen this movie. I mean, I saw it opening weekend in 2002 and kind of really enjoyed it then. Have really enjoyed it since, but this is to me has edged its way into being top five Spielberg. I think this wow. is true. Top five. True masterpiece. So it's better than one of the following. Raiders, E.T., Schindler's List, Jaws, and uh, Saving Private Ryan, let's say. It's better than one of those. Uh, well, two. Ooh. It's better than two of those? Top five Spielberg for me is – one is Jaws, which probably makes it top five of all time. Uh, Raiders, two. Munich, at three. Catch Me If You Can at four. Schindler's List at five, and then right outside is Saving Private Ryan at six. Um, and I think, you know, up to like his eighth is where I'm like, yeah, those are all wonderful. Where, I'm even where's Jurassic? I haven't seen I everything by Spielberg, but I know you're wrong. <laughs> Jurassic Park is seventh. Okay. Okay. I, uh, Bridge of Spies. It, it, you know, Spielberg's Bridge of Spies is eight. Spielberg has filmography where you're like, you know what? I get anyone's top five as long as like Hook and Terminal aren't in there. Like if anybody, if somebody said, you know what? Like Minority Report's in their top five, it's not in mine. I don't quite get that, but you know, Minority Report's fantastic. Um, but Catch Me If You Can is just, I think, a movie that I loved when I saw it in 2002 and thought it was wonderful, but has grown Every single year since. And I just think it's gotten better and better and better and better. And it's probably just because, you know, I've gotten a little older and I see a little bit more depth in it. Where when I saw it in 2002, I was like, this is fun. I'd love to be the DiCaprio character. This sounds fantastic. And then now I'm like, God, like, you know, it's fun, but it's also like it's sad and it's, it's heartfelt and. It's kind of everything you come to Spielberg for. So I, you know, this is to me like top tier, top echelon Spielberg. Um, so yeah, I've got it number four in my Spielberg list. So I think it's easily uh, Spiel of Dreams. Spiel of, what is it? Spiel of Dreams? Spiel of, Spiel of, Dreams. Spiel of Dreams. This is a, uh, this is a Spiel of Dreams for me as well. It's a movie that I absolutely loved and I was a little worried to come back to just because I, I knew I was coming back with a much more critical eye than I had in the time when I fell in love with it. And I'd spent enough time away from it that it also felt fresh coming in. And it's, it was nice to kind of see that a, I wasn't crazy, but B there was more to it than I even knew. So yeah, no brainer spilled of dreams for me. All right, Chris, when the Midnight Warriors sit down to uh, watch Catch Me If You Can, what should they be peeling the label off of? That is a great way to set this up. Um, so I was trying to figure out where where do we go with this? There's not an obvious entryway. And then I realized watching through, uh, Frank drinks a lot of milk. 
There's there are a number of scenes where he is he is shown just casually with a with a glass of milk off to the side. And so I figured, okay, let's let's go with a milk stout. And but at the same time, I I don't want to go with something that's a little like there's a few that I really like, but they're either hard to find or or not always available, regional, that sort of thing. And for this movie, it just felt right to go with something that's sort of a uh, a standard, something that's easily accessible, something that, you know, really seems like it fits the aesthetic and feel of this movie. So I'm going to pair Catch Me If You Can with the staple Nitro Milk Stout from Left Hand Brewing Company in Longmont, Colorado. This is coming in at 6% ABV, 25 IBU. And for those who may be unfamiliar with it, uh, Left Hand, their their milk stout is fairly well known, fairly readily available, even at like, you might be able to find it at your local Applebee's sort of a thing. But they also do a nitro variant. And if you can get the nitro, that's where it really where it's really at. Uh, it's It's got this great and you can get it both on draft and in cans and bottles. Um, it's got a really great kind of rich, creamy head on it. Uh, it says on the can or on the bottle, pour hard because you want to unlock all of that, uh, those tiny little nitro bubbles, uh, when you pour it out. But it's, you know, the, the nitro milk stout is nothing particularly fancy, but it's sweet. It's subtle. It's a crowd pleaser of a beer. It's not going to be overbearing on you over the course of this, you know, two hour and 20 minute picture. Um, you can have a couple and still feel fine. Uh, I think it's kind of the perfect pairing. So that's where I'm going. Nitro milk stout, left hand brewing. Check it out. Applebee's. Yeah, man, I'm not advocating going to Applebee's, but if you find yourself at an Applebee's, that would be the best thing on the menu. I, I think it's been uh, look. I haven't been to an Applebee's in forever, but I f- I feel like if you think a milk stout from Left Hand Brewing Company in Longmont, Colorado, is at an Applebee's, maybe you haven't been to an Applebee's lately. No, I bet it is. It, left Hand's pretty. Yeah, Left Hand's really? pretty well yeah. Known. yeah, yeah. I mean, at an Applebee's, Applebee's is probably to- a- Applebee's has a beer list now. I'm saying if Applebee's is to go somewhere beyond like a. Uh, Boulevard Wheat. This would be a natural next step where it's not too far out of left field, but it's actually a good quality beer. Catch Me If You Can is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email is your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone, leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around, folks. Our really rad recommendations are coming up next. Familiar highways Line with leaves turn brown Making my way Back into my hometown Funny how this all looks different But it feels the same Like how life never stops changing But some things never change so fill your plate and fill your drink And fill this house with family The kind of love that all these years can't wash away Cause the older that I get I see the life is short and bittersweet Thank God for this Thanksgiving day 
watching football, watching families grow. The old kids' table, all have kids of their own. Starting to see my grandfather in my nephew's eyes. Mom still can't talk about him, and I almost cry. All right, guys, it is time for really rad recommendations, and I'm curious because we haven't talked in a while. What you guys are going to recommend? Because I don't know what you've really been watching lately. So, Jake, why don't you kick us off? Uh, so most of what I've been watching has been streaming over a baby monitor. And so it's a lot of just my son sleeping and very little opportunity to actually watch a movie. So the one film I've watched besides this, I feel like in the last six months, even though I know that's not quite true, is Walt Disney's Robin Hood, which is really excellent. Very good. And available on Disney+. Plus. And it is directed by the great Wolfgang Reitherman, who I just looked up. I don't know that he's great or anything, but he directed that and a lot of other uh, animated films. Really, one of my absolute favorite uh, Disney movies, and part part of that is the uh, the Roger Miller songs yes. in it. Who I, I really love Roger Miller as well. A lot of people don't talk about Robin Hood in the in the kind of top tier uh, Disney animated pictures. It's from the seventies when maybe quality was a little little lower or or a bit of a low period for Disney. But this is one of my absolute favorites. And if you have Disney Plus, which you should, and you probably do because you're watching The Mandalorian. Uh, which I am not because I have a small son, but uh, but definitely watch Robin Hood with your your kid in small stretches between cries. Cooper uh, Cooper likes Robin Hood. We we oh, cycle really? it through every every once in a while. Yeah, I put this on a few times with the kids, and for whatever reason, they're I don't know they don't get into it. But I think one day they will. I think it's because I I do think there's a lot there. Yeah. It, it really is. And it beats the pants off of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which went downhill when they changed the Tootles song. <laughs> I, I have opinions now, guys. <laughs> it's it's only going to get worse from here on the opinions you have about <sighs> terrible, terrible children's programming. Oh, my God. If you want to start a podcast just complaining about <laughs> kids' television, <laughs> I'm down. Uh, Peterson, what do you have to recommend? Um, so we're, you know, kind of a couple weeks after Halloween, but uh, the Haunting of Bly Manor premiered on Netflix about a month ago. And it's a movie, or sorry, a, really a show that was second season of Mike Flanagan's uh, anthology series that started with The Haunting of Hill House and continues The Haunting of Bly Manor. And it's a, a update of the story of uh, by Henry James, The Turn of the Screw. And you know, Mike Flanagan's one of those directors currently working that I think, especially in the horror genre, is doing really interesting things. You know, obviously he did uh, Doctor Sleep last year, which I think is quite quite good, and I think the director's cut is truly incredible. I think the director's cut is excellent, which is on HBO Max. But the Haunting of Bly Manor is a story that told in nine different uh, episodes, but is certainly a horror, but is much more focused on kind of grief and mortality and kind of our our connection to mortality as people and how we should necessarily be scared of it. And I think that's one thing that Flanagan over his career has really delved into is that, you know, if there's, you know, whether there's an afterlife, there's not an afterlife, whether there's, you know, whether you die young or old, 
you shouldn't necessarily be scared to death. I think he's really interested in exploring the kind of comfort in what could lie beyond and potentially the comfort that people are given when they think of their loved ones who've uh, gone before them. And I think as scary as his shows are and his movies are, he's kind of this big softy. Um, and I think he's doing some really, really interesting things within the horror genre and, uh, you know, obviously his connections with St- uh, Stephen King, but uh, obviously he's updating, you know, the Shirley Jackson book with Haunting of Hill House and then uh, Henry James with this. And I think, you know, they're really, really rewarding watches and I, I, I do highly recommend those, which are on Netflix. Um, don't need to have watched The Haunting of Hill House to enjoy The Haunting of Bly Manor, but I think both are quite good and quite different. Honey Phil is much more kind of viscerally scary and Bly Manor is kind of much more cerebral in its approach. Um, but both are on Netflix right now. So go check those out. All right, Chris, what do you have? I haven't been watching a whole lot lately other than uh, Travel Man in short segments uh, when my daughter wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. Um, God, I love Travel Man. Travel Man's good, but uh, the the one thing that I have been consuming a lot of lately is Frank Herbert's Dune series. Uh, I just actually today started on the sixth, his final, the final book that he wrote in in the series. His son and another author have continued in all directions um, with with the series since his death, but um, it's. I I won't go too far into detail because there is a lot of detail to um to these books. I started just in I I kind of wanted to I knew David Lynch's Dune. Um I was, you know, somewhat familiar which which is a weird movie just in general both as a Lynch film but also as a sci-fi like it's it has things to love but it is uh it's tough to love as well. Um, so going into the Villeneuve movie, I kind of wanted to, I I'm generally not the type of person that wants to read a book before seeing a movie, but with this, because I knew it's so dense, I kind of wanted a bit of a grounding and I wanted, I think I also didn't want my grounding to just be David Lynch's interpretation. I didn't want to be just referencing that. And so I, I got into it, uh, I got into the first one and I ha- haven't re- really been able to stop. I generally, uh, you know, listen to this when I, I go on long bike rides, which is another like 2020 activity of just, you know, I'll go ride 50, 60 miles and just clear my head and listen to Dune. And uh, it's all is right with the world for a little bit. Um, so I'm six books in uh, very, I haven't described anything. It, the, titular dune it's a planet uh there's worms uh there's paul atreides uh he has powers the worms create this stuff called spice it gives people powers um it's crazy uh if you're into i i I can't decide if this if roman would qualify this as hard sci-fi or not (laughs) i think maybe roman from party down uh but 
it's uh it's definitely it's very detailed i i like the way herbert structures things he's never building up to like a big cheap surprise he oftentimes sort of skips over the battle or the thing that you expect to be the uh, the big sort of turning point or linchpin because he's always interested in sort of what's coming next. And he's really interested in sort of this sociological view of basically he sets up the first three books to be the foundation of a religion and then passes forward millennia uh, in the next book and then drops us off even later still in the next couple and he's kind of using so he he sets up a world and then we're able to actually see with hindsight what sort of became of these myths that were planted generations ago if that sounds like your your type of thing if also uh weird worm stuff and uh lots of crazy names sounds like your thing i'd say check out check out the dune books they're uh, pretty good and pretty addictive. There's also a graphic novel coming out that I'm probably going to read. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the work of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, Adam Chipwood drops by to discuss Wes's first foray into animation with his adaptation of Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr. Fox. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPod. You can find me on Xbox Live in 2008 as at Dan Xanadu. And I'm at Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy Warshots Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck at Lava Sound Studios. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at BenRectorMusic.com. Thanks for listening, folks. He doesn't have a passport. I should have concurred. I thought it was a banana at first. (laughs) (laughs) Is Pearson even laughing or is it just us? No, I am. No, I, when I first looked at it, I was like, that's a banana. I didn't even look at it.
get a text any second. <laughs> Chris, this this reminds me of us laughing in college. I know, I know. It hurts just as bad. (laughs) Oh, my my ab hurts. (laughs) That was the promise. Once I got into it, I got to think of Eddie Izzard and Engelbert Humperdinck. (laughs) Oh Oh my god (laughs) Shit looks like a pickle It's a surprise pickle In your toilet (laughs) I I read it again (laughs) It's anger in it man (laughs) Break your arms (laughs) Thanks. <laughs>